This is the story of seven women, each telling in her own way her part in the Easter Rising. First, Nora Connolly O'Brien, daughter of James Connolly. I was in charge of a group of girls. We were sent up to the north to, with messages to various places to see that we could get them out, you see, and to tell them that they were going to be fighting in Dublin from noon. And uh, most of that week was spent in frustration. I, uh, I have some very pleasant memories of that week, also, as well as the sense of frustration. I remember... We hadn't long uh, uh, arrived in Coal Island. We were all meeting in Coal Island, and we were over in the, the... All the girls were in the hotel, and suddenly a man came rushing in. He says, where's your first aiders? So, of course, I j- jumped forward. I said, what is it? And shot himself over there. Come over and see what you can do. So I went over, and there were... I don't know, I can't remember now whether it was a hall or another, another house. And... Uh, the man, he shot himself in the thumb, and she was sitting there looking at his hand in amazement, you know. And it wasn't serious, it was just merely a sort of skin wound. So I took out my bandages and things, and I bandaged it, fixed it and bandaged it all up. And all the men, I could feel them growing around me, you know, <laughs> coming in closer and closer and looking over my shoulder. You know, you can feel a crowd come get round you. And watching this way that I bandaged up his and when it, when I had finished, I just straightened up and turned. And one man, he gave me a, you know, acclamation on the shoulder and nearly knocked me down. He says, hi, he says, you're coming with me. You're coming with us. I says, oh, not only for that, I says, how do you know that I don't want to make holes rather than plug them? And he gave me another big whack on the back and he said, come with us and we'll let you do both. That was one pleasant thing. That was the, the the other one was while we were waiting for word, the local organizer in Coal Island had gathered all his group, and he he'd mobilized them immediately, and we were being taken away from the house in a place we were stopping in Coal Island to go to a, a farmhouse to stay overnight, and we stopped on the way into a big barn. And I, when I went in, I, I stood still because it just reminded me of all the things you'd, I had read in books of rendezvous of rebels, you know. They, there were them all around the hall that the men were sitting and waiting, and along the side of the barn were their rifles and their bandoliers, you know. And they were sitting there and they were waiting for the summons to get out. It was extraordinary. There was no only a small... Um, oil lamp, and there was a li- little fire they'd made up a, a corner of, on the floor, resting on the floor, and they were all very quiet and serious and waiting, you know, and, but it, I remember that picture, of that picture of the room and the rifles and bandoliers along the wall, and the men sitting around and just waiting, waiting for the word, and the word never came, of course. Oh! 
For another young girl, the Easter Revolution has one abiding memory. She was the only woman present in Liberty Hall at the printing of the proclamation. Rosie Hackett remembers. They had, uh, hadn't much type, like, you know, the type was uh, short, and they had to patch it up a bit, you see. And, uh, of like, course, again, they worked all night, you see, make, doing the proclamation, you see. But when I went in, uh, there was three men in the, in the printing, in, the, in where the machine was, the machine room, and... Uh, one man walked over and uh, shook hands with me, congratulated me. I ha- was the first that was allowed in to the printing, like during the proclamation being done. And uh, Madame herself was kicking up her air because she wasn't let in, so there was nobody let in, and I was only let in with the messages. News of the Easter Rising was brought to Seamus Doyle in Inniscorthy by Eilio O'Hanahan O'Reilly, a sister of Mihala Haurachan. It was a dis- dispatch, you see, and it was sewed in, in a fur. I was dressed as a grown-up, you see, and uh, I said, I don't know Mihala. I said, I've got no, no address whatsoever, and I told him exactly what occurred, you see, and I uh, said, I, what will I do, sir? And said he, well, listen, see, all, all the information I can give you, is, he said, if you could find the echo office, the Enniscorthy echo office, that's the paper, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, there'd be a, a man there named Seamus Doyle. And he said, ask for him, and he, you can uh, trust him with your uh, dispatch. He's the man, in fact, you're looking for, so anyhow, I got, I arrived at Enniscorthy and I went down through the town. I could ask nobody, you know. I didn't ask anybody where it was. And after some time, anyhow, I found, found it. And I, I of course, uh, knocked at the glass door. And a very nice man came to the door and let me in. And... Uh, uh, I said that I wanted to see Mr. Doyle. And uh, he said, well, he said, you mean, you mean Seamus Doyle exactly, I said. Well, he said, Seamus Doyle, he said, isn't it in town, he said. That's easy to do. But said, I'll take any message you want, said he, for him. Well, I said, I, it happens to be a verbal message, I said. Well, it wasn't, did she? But it rushed into me. It was God told me. I mean, what to say? Because, I mean, I hadn't even, even thought that part out, you know. So, anyhow, when he said a verb message and you can't give it to me, I said, no, I said, I'm not giving it to you. And he said, he raised then, he said, and he said, I'll bring it to Seamus. Over off the Dublin in the green, in the green, our bayonets glittering in the sun, and the tans they blow like lightning to the rattle of a Thompson gun. I am a jolly slow boy, and I plow the fields all day, when something came across my mind, and now I'm on my way. Oh, we're off 
the Dublin in the green, in the green, our bayonets glittering in the sun, and the tans they blow like lightning through the rattle of a Thompson run. Leslie Bandeboller remembers Easter Monday morning. About ten o'clock I got a note to say that I was to report at you know the corner of Lessingdon Street that runs if you were going down towards the Black Church you know that part I was mobilised for there so I put on my haversack and all the remainder and I went up there and all, all our branch of Cumnaman were there, a great number of the members. And we were there, we were there, we were to report there at 11 o'clock. And we were to be attached to Ned Daly's battalion, which was in occupying Church Street and the Four Courts. Mm. So we were told to wait until we got some instruction. And we waited until about, I'd say it must have been about nearly one o'clock and um, I had a great friend her name was Breathe Dixon she was the daughter of Henry Dixon who was one of the founders of Sinn Féin and we stood talking for a bit and I said I'm not going home today <laughs> so she said where are you going well we had seen the Lancers go down from the Phoenix Park down Blessington Street you see and they were all beautifully plumed, you never saw anything like them, you'd think they were going out to receive some royalty and then we heard firing and it was that really that made me say I'm not going home today, so she said well we'll go down to the GPO you see we had heard was occupied so we went down <coughs> and we went in and the first people we met were Tom Clark and Sean McDermott we had known these very well, the two of us and we saw other men that we knew and girls. We so Tom Clark then said to the two of us, "You stand by now because I'm going to use the two of you as couriers." You see, Margaret Skinner had a somewhat different Easter Monday. On Monday morning, I was sent on my bicycle to scout about the city to see if there was any movement of troops at the various barracks. There was not. Moreover, I learned that their officers, for the most part, were off to the races at Ferry House. When I returned to Port James Connolly, I saw Padraig Pierce for the first time. I remember how well he looked that day. Thomas McDonough was there also. I was next detailed to, as dispatch rider for the St Stephen's Green Command and was again sent out to scout ahead, this time for the OC Commandant Michael Mallon. When I turned into Eden Quay, I saw Francis Sheehy Skeffington, and I'm always glad that I got off my bicycle to speak to him. I never saw him again. If I did not find the military moving, I was to remain at the end of the green until I should see our men coming in to take possession. There were no soldiers in sight, only a policeman standing at the end of the green, and he paid no attention to me. I was only a girl on a bicycle. It was impossible to believe that neither the police nor the military authorities were on guard. The man stood about, I, this man stood about idly and was the last policeman I saw until after the rising was over. It was a great moment for me as I stood there when between the branches of trees I saw a sight of men in dark green uniforms 
coming along in twos and threes to take up their position in and about the green. There were only 36 altogether, whereas the original plan had been for about 100. The buildings round the green and the outposts which we should have manned were either not held at all or inadequately manned. But behind them I could see in the spring sunlight those legions of Irish men who made their fight against as heavy or heavier odds and who, though they died, had left us their dream to make real. Perhaps this time, I thought. Grab the green flag round me, boys, the day were far more sweet. With their noble emblem, boys, to be my winding sheet. In life I love to see it wave and follow where it led. But now my eyes grow dim, my hand would grasp its last bright red. Meanwhile, Eilish Benny Hunnell was making her bid to get into the Easter Rising. We went down to the GPO and when we got to the door, there was sentry on the door and... Uh, he as much as said, there's enough of your sort here, sort of thing. But he said, well, you're not wanted. He said, we have enough of nurses and we have enough of staff. And we were terribly disappointed and we begged them to let us in and he wouldn't. Well, to see, if you're so anxious, he said, no. He said, there's a, an outpost across the road and if you go over there, you might be allowed in. So we went over across the road to where he told us. And, yes... And um, oh, we were after getting such a lot of knocks that <laughs> we were determined anyway to hold on. So when we got to the door, um, the place was um, they called it Reese's Chambers. It was over the bank at the corner of O'Connell Street, over the the Hibernian Bank, I think it was, or was it the Munster and Leinster? I'm not quite sure of the bank anyway. It was a bank building, and at the side of the bank building, there was a what, a wireless school. And we came, the man came down to the door. He happened to be Blimey O'Connor, I suppose. You all know Blimey. And Blimey came down to the door and he received us with open arms and he said he was very delighted to see that somebody came along to look after them. But, however, they were starving and they had eaten their... They had only uh, rations with them, like... um, For the day, like uh, sandwiches, and they had them all eaten and they had no food. And they had milk, condensed milk, and they had, they no, they had no bread. We said we'd go over to the GPO and try and get them something to eat. So the pair of us started over to the GPO, and when we went over to the GPO, the sentry on the door said we couldn't go in without a permit or without an order from the... So we said we were after coming across under fire. Well, it was very bad in O'Connell Street at the time. We were after coming across under fire and that it was very dangerous and through barbed wire, which is a fact now, a lot of barbed wire on the, the barricades and, um, what do you call them, Garoda Sullivan. Garoda Sullivan was at this barricade and he said to the sentry to let us in, that we were OK. Well, we got in anyway and forced our way through them and we were sent from one from Billy to Jack in other words up the stairs and down that stairs yeah, we were told the, at the very top the, and the food controller was Devin Fitzgerald 
and we'd have to go to the food controller, but it wasn't likely we'd get anything because we'd have to have the the order like from. So we begged and begged and was nothing doing. We'd have to go back and get the order. So I said we couldn't go back under fire, that we took an awful risk in going at all, and that's how we're going to get back. Well, says he, you're getting no, you're getting nothing here, he said, without the order. Well, I said, if you're not giving it to us, we'll take it. <laughs> because, I mean, we were, that was the way we felt anyway, so we didn't take it after a long time. He responded to our request. And he gave us a very, we got a very slight ration then, and we brought it back, including a bottle of milk, or it wasn't in bottles that time, I think it was a jug of milk we got. But um, when we went back then, oh, we were hours away, and the, the men wondered what happened to us, and they were very disappointed. So at long last, when we got back, they um, welcomed us back and blimey shouted, up the Republic! Meanwhile, Margaret Skinner in Stevens Green was about to witness one of the more dramatic but least talked about episodes of the Rising. The soldiers from Portobello Barracks were sent out twice on Monday to attack our position in Stevens Green. The first time was shortly after noon, before we were completely entrenched. They had gone only as far as Portobello Bridge when they were fired on from the roof of Davies Public House, just at the other side of the bridge. Our rifle fire was uninterrupted and a number of the soldiers fell. They probably thought they were dealing with a considerable force, for they did not advance until the firing ceased or until word was brought to the three men on the roof that we were securely entrenched. That evening, just when it was beginning to grow dusk, on my way back from the GPO, I noticed a crowd of curious civilians who had been hanging around the green all day had disappeared. The next thing I saw was two persons hurrying away from the green, these were Madame Markievicz and William Partridge. They stopped just ahead of me. When I saw the British soldiers coming down, then I saw the British soldiers coming down Harcourt Street. The Countess stood motionless, waiting for them to come near. She was a lieutenant in the Irish Citizen Army, and in her uniform and black hat with great plumes looked most impressive. At length she raised her gun to her shoulder. It was an automatic which she had converted into a rifle and took aim. The shots rang out and I saw the two officers leading the column drop to the streets. As the Countess was taking aim again, the soldiers, without firing a shot, turned and retreated in great confusion.
Phyllis Benny Kelly tells now how she became a part of the Rising. See, I wasn't a member of Cumulamon in 1916. I was a student in the university. I was at the foundation meeting of Cumulamon in the mansion house. I didn't join. I said, I'll wait now until I get my degree and that'll help me to... Then I can go and put my, devote myself into this kind of thing. So when 1916... I was, uh, Sean McDermott was a great friend of all of myself and my family, and he asked, he was in, and he said, you come over to me, Phyllis, said, on Wednesday evening, the same as I lay there, to 25 Parnell Square, I have a message for you. So I went over, and Sean said, yes, the message he had for me when I came, I said, I've disposed of everything now, he says, except one thing that you've got to do, go back and tell Maureen Cregan in Grove Park, where she lived in Diggs, that she's to stay up till I call to see her tonight. So I said, that's all the message you've got to give me? He said, yes, that's all, Phyllis. Do that carefully now. I said, yes, I'll go back. Tell Maureen Cregan that you're going to call to her tonight in Grove Park to give her a message. I said, yes, I'll do that. Maureen Cregan was a friend of mine, became the wife of my brother, Jim Ryan, later. Uh, I went home to my, down to the country for my holidays the next day, which was Holy Thursday, and Min Ryan, my sister, arrived now and doing messages like the others down in Wexford on Sunday. And she came out to my home where we all lived, and uh, she said she had to go back to Dublin again. And my mother said, somebody must go back with you, Min. You can't go back alone to Dublin like that. You're living up there in the house alone. Yes, she said, somebody come. Phyllis will go with you. Phyllis will go with you. Take Phyllis with you. She's, she's the youngest. She's not doing much here. And take her with you. So I went back with her to Dublin. I wasn't a member of coming on. My sister, Min, went, was mobilized for the coming on the next Monday and found there was nothing happening and went in to the post office and came back to me that night and uh, she said she'd go into the post office the next morning again would I wait for Jim, my brother Jim who had gone down the country with some messages so as to tell him what to do when he came up I waited and Min came back and Min and Jim, my brother myself we walked down to the post office on Tuesday and he stayed there and she, I spent a whole night there cutting up bread and making sandwiches and all that kind of thing, you know, very busy and very, very, getting very tired at it and boys come down from the roof to be fed and so on. So, but that was all the work that I did in the post office for one whole night. The next day, Sean McDermott sent me off to do messages around the town, the two of us, and we went up to see the, one of the messages, two of the messages were to see the relatives of prisoners that were in the post office. Another message out to Mrs. Tom Clark. Another message somewhere else I don't remember. We came back, we came back, couldn't get back into the post office that evening and went home. My brother stayed in the post office, of course. And uh, the next morning we went down again to try to get in. No, that night we didn't go home. We spent the night in Mountjoy Square with uh, Walter Cole, who had a house up there. We went down in the morning into the post office again on Thursday morning and... Uh, sent us out with messages again, the two minimums. We went out and couldn't get back any more. That was all that I did in the Rising. Sheila Grennan, who had travelled north as a courier, was at this very same time in the GPO and now ready for more work. Connolly sent me down to them. Four courts. And when I went down to the four courts, there was a woman there... I had a dispatch for Frank Fahey 
but I gave it to Joan McGuinness because she was at the railings. And uh, oh, my poor leg. Um, he, um, there was a woman there at, at the four courts and she was given out drugs abuse to the O'Reilly. Oh, she called them for everything and anything. And she said that her son was in the in the poor horse fighting, but O'Reilly wouldn't come out to fight. Oh, dear. <laughs> so I need to tell you, I put her right. <laughs> and said she, and you see, he's up in the post office. So I said, I know the O'Reilly well, I said. He's up in the post office, I said. I must tell me son, says she. I must tell me son, says she. However, I hope she did. But that evening, Connolly came to me and he said to me, he said, well, he said, uh, uh, they obeyed your orders, he said. What orders, said I? The orders you said you gave in the, in the four courts. I didn't give any orders. <laughs> didn't you carry the smack tell him to blow up Linen Hall? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, then, when I came back from the four courts, in the course of the day, I must have met the O'Reilly, and I told him this story. Now, are you sure, he said, that you told that woman that you saw me and that you knew me, he said. I did. Yes, he did. I did. Said I. Well, he said, you have done me a great service, he said. I'm very grateful to you. And he said, when we're in occupation here, he said, for a week, we'll have a ball. And he said, we'll, um, you, I'll dance a minuet with you. <laughs> <laughs> God help him, we didn't last the week at all. By Thursday evening, events were taking a turn for the worst, and Leslie Bandebara was sent on a very perilous errand. Yes, the next thing that I remember now was Thursday, in the middle of the day, and well, it would have been going to about four or five o'clock, and um, Tom Clark called me and he said, you have to go over to Marlborough Street Church got to the presbytery and bring back a priest. Now, that was the day that Connolly, I think, well, now, I'm as I say, the days are mixed. He had come out on the front of the, of the post office and he was only out about two minutes, I think, when he was shot in the leg. And this flew into my mind. I said to myself, across O'Connell Street... But I, the tears were coming into my eyes, you see, with fear. But I was ashamed to let them come down my cheek before Tom Clark. So I said, very well. And 
I went out the side of the post office and I walked up Moore Street and across by the rotunda, keeping in by the wall, you see. Now, at that time, I knew that there was a barricade of British soldiers up at Finlater's Church, you know where that is. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, if I run now, that I'll only be nipped off. Mm -hmm. I, what I did was I walked very slowly out to the foot of Parnell and I looked up at him and then I crossed diagonally against the other side of, of it was Britain Street then and then I came to the corner of Marlborough Street and I crept in by the walls where there are railings all there on the houses you know and all the women were in the doorways and they were roaring go home girl you'll be killed because the British are in the education office so I knew I had to go on I went on and I got to the steps of the presbytery and with the heel of my shoe I battered on the door and then after a time I was shivering there a priest came up me and um, he let me in and uh, he said come down now we're down in the cellars you see so I went down and he said what do you want so I said I've been sent over from the general post office for a priest so he looked at me and he said do you realize that you're working in there with a group of communists that you have James Connolly and all the socialists in there. So I said, I have been sent for a priest. I said, I'm certain no man or woman in the general post office wants a priest, really. I, I knew that every one of us had gone to confession on Easter, Saturday evening, the eve of Easter. And, but I said... If a man is dying, well, it is a consolation to have a priest. So I said, if you don't want to come, I'm going back. You see, and I'm going back alone. So he considered for a bit and he talked still about the socialists and the communists and I couldn't tell you what not. And he said, you're a very foolish child. You should be at home with your parents. However, I said, well, now I'm going. So he said, well, we won't go out the front door. We'll go out the back. Yeah. You know the street where Carl Brewer was killed, the Lord of Mercy. You know? We went up that and we came to what is now Sean McDermott Street. And I told him that I had gone my panels monument, but he said, we'll run across the street here. And we ran across to where... I think it was the hospitals trust had a big have a big place now, haven't mm. they? It used to be cranes, a piano maker's mm. business, and we crept along the side of the houses and down Moore Street again, and we got to the GPO, and we went in on the side door, and I said, "Now goodbye. I'm handing you over to Tom Clark and Sean McDermott." So. I was delighted to be rid of him, I may tell you, but I got him in at any rate. However, I think he stayed for a time with the men. I don't know. I didn't see him afterwards, except that when I, after I came home and when we were giving in our reports, you see, to our committee of Comdemon, 
I didn't mention anything about him because I said the man is alive now and I don't want the finger to be pointed at him. Let the Lord deal with him. But he had done what he was asked to do. But um, that was Thursday evening and I think he stayed there for a good part of the night. On Wednesday evening, Margaret Skinner planned to bomb the Shelburne, but she was dissuaded by Commandant Mallon, who thought the operation too dangerous. Besides, he told her there was another job to be done. That was to cut off the retreat of the British forces from the roof of University Church. He wanted also some houses in Harcourt Street burned. She was given four men. It took only a few minutes to reach the building at the foot of Harcourt Street. William, William Partridge smashed the glass door in front of the shop with his rifle butt and a flash followed. I went past him into the doorway of the shop and half turned to tell the others to come on and behind me came the sound of a volley and I fell. The flash from Partridge's gun had revealed us to the enemy who fired from a Sinn Féin bank opposite. Partridge lifted and carried me into the street and there on the sidewalk lay a figure in the pool of blood. It was Fred Ryan, a boy of 17, who had pleaded to be allowed to come with us. He was dead. I was taken back to the College of Surgeons and there was Joe Connolly with our bicycles ready for the job at the Shelburne. When my coat was cut off, I was found to have three bullet wounds, one a quarter of an inch from my spine. If I had not turned to call the others, I would have got all three into my back. From the size of the wounds, it was clear that dum-dum bullets had been used. Soon after I was brought in, Madame Markovic and William Partridge went out and shot the two soldiers who fired on them also from the Sinn Féin bank. They told me that next day, Thursday, I was delirious. When I was taken to St Vincent's Hospital at the surrender, I had pneumonia, perhaps from the bullets, or perhaps I got cold sleeping out in Stephen's Green on Monday night. At the GPO too, the end was very near. Sheila Grennan remembers with sadness, but a sadness tinged with exaltation. I nearly fainted with joy and delight when he said that we have redeemed Dublin, we have wiped out the stain of Emmett. Oh, I nearly went through the ground with joy. And you know, the beautiful voice he had, the beautiful voice he had. But then he called, he called coming them on, and he told them that they did. That uh, he would uh, like them to leave, and of course the protested strongly. Oh, well, he said, now he said, it was, he said, a request, he said, but now he said it's an order. And he said, of course, I'm very grateful, and Ireland was very grateful for the workers have done. But fortunately, Winnie Carney and Elizabeth O'Farrell and myself were selected to go with the men to Bow Street. So we, we did that. The the O'Reilly, the O'Reilly went out. You see, there was two row of men, and um, the O'Reilly was in charge of them. And Sean McDermott, oh Sean McDermott, was roaring like a lion at them. <laughs> he was indeed. <laughs> but at any rate, what was he saying today? We went. We got. We had to run from the post office. We had to run from the post Trust office. Right, a zigzag across the lane, you know. We came out then. And on the edge of the path on Henry Place, 
there was a volunteer. And the volunteer had his hands outstretched like that, you see. And when I saw him like that, I said, I, I saw the poor old crappie sitting out on the mountain. Oh, dear, dear. Was down the glen one Easter morn to a city fair or die. When Ireland's lines of marching men in squadrons passed me by. No pipe did hum and no battle drum did sound its red tattoo. But the angelus bell or the levy swell rang out in the foggy dew. At the end of the week, Nora Connolly and her sister were returning to Dublin from the north. We'd got as far as Dundalk, and we had to walk from Dundalk. My sister was with me. I had sent the, the different g- girls away with their messages and told them that they could come back if the men were coming back, but not to, you see. If, they, if the men weren't coming back, they were to stay there. Because So we, five, Ina and I started walking when we found we couldn't get... There was the, from Dundalk down, there was nothing going on the trains but uh, military and of course in those days there were very few motors and there were no buses so there was no way no other way of getting back to Dublin so we started to walk but we spent the night in a field <laughs> I remember thinking I never knew I had so many bones in my body and they all seemed to be shaking but we got up and we walked on down and uh, we'd got, I should think, rather near to Balbriggan at the time. And both of us were feeling our feet were burning because we had strong shoes, the boots that we had that we weren't really accustomed to wearing, and we had got for when we expected that all our work would be in country work, you know. So we looked in through, uh, we could see a ploughed field on the on the on the behind the hedge on the road. So we got both of us got into a gap, and we took off our shoes and stockings and plunged our feet into the ploughed earth. And I think we both sort of dozed off. And suddenly we both jumped up, and we could hear the rattling, the thunder of the guns. And what is that? Ina said to me. I said, it's guns, guns in Dublin. Come on, hurry up. So we've rushed on, we put on, our, put on our boots. And off down we started again. Well, then we got about to swords. And we met, a, I suppose, a regiment, you would call it, of British soldiers coming towards us. They had the gun carriages and they were, all had, were on, had their rifles slung on their shoulder and the... The, the, you know, the usual ammunition cart they have with and all. And they were marching, coming towards us. And I said, oh, Ina, look, they're coming from Dublin. Our men must be beaten. They're coming from Dublin. They're not going to Dublin. And I thought we'd die before we got to Dublin. Eilishley Connell uh, remembers vividly how her post was abandoned. There were four of us left, the two Elliot sisters, myself and Gerlim Kathleen Kinney. 
and uh, it was dark and it was night and we'd no place to go and we didn't know where to go and we didn't know what to do. And Father Augustine said, well, now, he said, we can't let you out on the street at this hour of the night. We must see about doing something. Well, in the hall, we had um, blankets, not exactly blankets, rugs and, and uh, um, army blankets, I think they were, yes, they were those brown fellows. And we, he said, no, we'll have to see about doing something about So Father, Father Augustine and Brother Pacificus went off together and uh, had a chat, I suppose. And there was, a little, there was a room at the back of the altar, a little room off the church at the back of the altar. And he got, uh, they got um, some of the bedding equipment that was in the hall into this place. And they put them all along in rows on the floor and brought in the blanks and they told us to... Oh, then they knelt down at the church and said the rosary, the whole lot, the two, Father Augustine and Brother Pacificus and ourselves. And uh, he said, no, he said, You're, you'll be all right there, you can sleep there, he said, and rest yourselves and uh, we'll call you. You're to leave... Oh, yes, you'll dress yourselves in the morning and when the Angelus rings you can come out and mingle among the congregation. Now, before the before the church to be open, we were yeah. to mingle about and yeah. take our and not kneel together in a group, you see, to scatter around. Mingle with the congregation and then go out with the congregation, you see, as if we were there attending mass in the ordinary way. So we did that, and uh, we came out and. Uh, we mingled with the congregation and we were filthy of course when we were <laughs> I don't know what we were like but we, we were very untidy and all that sort of thing of course we hadn't had we hadn't a wash for the week or anything except <laughs> just and no we hadn't taken off our clothes even and um, we mingled with the crowd as he told us and we came down side streets and back streets streets we streets we did never heard of before and one was Cuckoo Lane. Did you ever heard of Cuckoo Lane? <laughs> yes, at the side of... off North King Street. So we got as far as North Frederick Street, anyway, after a struggle. And when we got as far as North Frederick Street, we met two, two members of the Keating branch of the Gaelic League. Now, the wedding didn't come on, but they were very sympathetic with us. And... Uh, they were wondering where we were and what happened and how we were and we we didn't tell them very much but we <laughs> they said there was a sympathetic restaurant mm. across the street at the Miss Malloy's incidentally they were very good afterwards those Miss Malloy's they, um, they took us over there and the Miss Malloy's gave us a cup of tea and toast and bread and we we were ravenous, of course, with the hunger because we hadn't. Oh, by the way, Brother Pacificus brought us a cup of tea in the morning <laughs> before the Angelus rang, <laughs> and uh, he brought he brought the tree. He knocked at the door, and he said, um, "Tree is at the door." And we opened the door. I don't know who got out first, and of course we were dead. We were absolutely. Doshes with the sleep, we just couldn't move. So he brought he, the tray was at the door anyway, and a pot of tea, a silver pot at that, <laughs> and of course, lovely bread and butter. And we had our tea there. We had the tea for breakfast, and we got out and we mingled with the crowd, and we separated, and we went different sides of the streets going up, 
so the Easter Rising ended. But for one of our contributors, the real anguish was only beginning. Her last visit to her father, Nora Connolly O'Brien. So he was driven through Dublin about that time in the morning between half past one and two. Driven right up to the castle. And it was really, it was eerie going through Dublin that time because seeing nobody on the streets, you know, and still that horrible smell of burning. It took an awful long time to go away. You know what the burning smell was like? Did you ever drop water on ashes, hot ashes? Well, that seemed to be the smell all the time of the burning. And all you saw walking on the streets were soldiers. So we went into the castle and we were handed over to somebody else that was there, some other officer, and he took us and brought us into a room and brought in a nurse with us. And he just didn't say a word, he just shook his hand, pointed to the two of us, to, to the nurse, he pointed to the two of us. And uh, she shut the door. And she says, come over this way. She's out of view, way out of view of the keyhole. And we said, what is it? She says, I'm supposed to search you, but I'm not going to do it. She says, just stay here long enough to have taken time to search you. And what is it, said Mama, what has happened? Well, she says, I don't know anything. She says, I don't know anything. But I could see that she was terribly upset. And uh, then she... After a while, then lock on the door, and the soldier came in, and we were led out. And we brought up to the big central staircase, and it was lined on both sides with soldiers with bayonets. And there, the pallets, you know, the biscuits they called them, on the on the landing was all covered with that, and some of them were lying down asleep, and there were others just all on the alert. And then the Outside my father's door, there were two soldiers with their rifles and bayonets, and we went into them. And when we saw Daddy, you know, he, he smiled and he said, Well, Lily, he says, you know what this means. She said, oh, not your beautiful life, James, not your beautiful life, and she broke down. And he patted her on the shoulder and he said, but hasn't it been a good, hasn't it been a great life, Lillian, hasn't this been, isn't this a good end? But she was really, she broke down very much. He tried to pat her and he said, don't cry, Lily, he said, you'll unman me. He said, I slept for the first time tonight and they wakened me to tell me I was to be executed at dawn. So then I asked for you and Nora. He was very calm. But Mama was really saying broken-hearted. She made me, I got a lump in my throat, and, was, and he looked at me and he says, No, no, no. I said, Oh, don't cry. I said, No, no, I won't cry. But, uh, and he tried to talk and tell, uh, advising me of various things to do that we should do when he was gone. And 
try to keep it on a quiet business like sort of talk, you know. And then they they knocked at the door and they said, Time to come. Time's up. Oh, couldn't move Mum away. She seemed as if she was rooted to the floor. And father said to me, Oh, help your mother, Nora. And he put his, you know, he couldn't lift himself from the bed at all. He couldn't lift his shoulders from the bed. But he put his two arms around me, he said. Nora, girl, he says, I'm very proud of you. Now get, take your mother away, get your mother away. I think he felt, you know, with this, he was quite lose control too. So the nurse came in and she and I, we both got mum out. And Mama seemed to get, when she was away from him, to get much calmer, you know. And we went down to the room again where the nurse had refused to search us. And Mama asked her, would she get a, a lock of his hair? <laughs> 